come up here. Sorry for that. It's been several weeks now since you've been asked to turn to the Gospel of John. So I'll ask you to do that again now, John chapter 11. It's always hard for me when something like last week happens and I'm not able to be with you. Uh, God knows best, doesn't he? And I'm very thankful for what he did for us through Ryan's bringing God's word last week. John 11, and we'll begin reading in just a moment at verse 45. Now, the last time that we were here a few weeks ago now, we were given a sight of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And what we were seeing, we realized then, was something of a peak of a mountain that we've been climbing in John throughout this gospel. Because Jesus has been giving us signs that point to who he is all the way along. Signs that point to, in particular, to his divine power and his divine mission. And we watched as Jesus raised this man from the dead, and we realized that we were watching him display the highest of those signs that he was going to give in his earthly ministry. And so it was something of a mountaintop, you could say, a peak. Uh, but this morning, we could very well say the same thing. Uh, we could say that that's happening this morning on another mountaintop, another mountain that we have been climbing. Uh, that's a metaphor. When you're in the world of metaphors, it's, you can be climbing two mountains at the same time. So we'll just go with that. Uh, but we could say that because there's another theme that has been developing all the way along here, and that's had to do with the way that people have reacted to Jesus as he in has increasingly revealed God to us in himself. And in particular, with the way that the rulers of the Jews have reacted to him. They're standing, we've seen, in something of a representative place for the nation. They have misunderstood him. They have questioned his authority. We saw it especially in John 8, they articulated that. They've questioned even the legitimacy of his works that are plain for everyone to see. Remember in John 9, with the man born blind, they come to doubt that he even was born blind, that this even happened at all. But this morning, we hear them respond to this final sign that Jesus will provide here in John. And so, in doing that, what we're having here is we're having, you could say, the veil pulled back. And what we're going to find is that behind all of their responses to him has been all the way along a rock-hard heart. So that what we will see this morning is we'll see what the sin of unbelief looks like. It's really important for us to understand this because the sin of unbelief is not a sin that you and I are immune to. Even as Christians, there continue to be places in, in our lives where we struggle with and fall prey to this sin that we're going to see on display, the sin of unbelief. It's a statement in Mark 9 that seems to be praised or at least held out as an example to us. You remember when the man cries out to Jesus in Mark 9, 24, he said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. 
Even as Christians, there is a war to be waged against unbelief. And my friend, when you look inside yourself and you find that unbelief is a presence that does plague you, that does attack you in this area or in that one, you need to know that you are not alone in this. But part of what can so help us in our fight is to better understand the enemy that we're fighting against. And so we have a great opportunity that the Lord is giving us today as we come to see this in this part of his word. We'll spend here as we begin roughly maybe half of our time outside of John 11. So I'll have you turn to a couple of places other than this, looking especially at two passages in order to see first what God has told us about the nature of unbelief. And what we'll do with that then is we'll come back to our text here in John 11 and be able, hopefully more clearly, to see those attributes of unbelief on display here. And as we do this, my prayer is that God's word will work in his people to help us in this ongoing battle that we all are in. Uh, to bring every sphere of our thinking and every sphere of our living into conscious submission to our Lord, who is worthy of our trust. This is the opportunity that we have before us this morning. But to begin, let's read the text. I'll be reading John 11, verses 45. We'll go down to verse 57, although we'll really just be looking to verse 53 this morning. John 11, starting in verse 45, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. John continues in this way. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. 
You can put your finger here. We'll start by turning somewhere else. Now we'll go two places. The first of these is a little different from the second in that the first one does not give us specific historic instances of unbelief. What it's going to do instead is it's going to be a place that reveals to us the true spiritual nature of such instances. What is really going on as unbelief is put on display and we see? So the first place I'll have you go, uh, you may have turned there already this morning because Blake read it to us, Psalm 2, and I'm going to reread again the first six verses. Listen again to what we have here. psalmist writes this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me... I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now just notice that in terms of the way it's written, it's quoting humans in their rebellion against God. How often do you think that anybody on earth or any ruler on earth comes out and says this? Is this what's going on in the meetings of the United Nations behind closed doors? They're saying, how can we cast off God's bonds from us? He's not giving us here things that are usually said. We are plenty good as humans at piling subterfuge, rationalizations, excuses on top of what's going on inside of us. So that's one thing that's important to notice. He's not quoting what what fallen men in our rebellion actually say. What he's doing here is he is giving us the truth of the matter. What is it that characterizes the nations? What characterizes the people of this world as represented even in their rulers? And there are two characteristics especially here that this first text especially puts on display for us to see. They are sinful rebellion and a blindness to God's goodness. These people are summed up here to begin with the description that they rage and they plot in vain. You see that in verse 1? So a couple of questions for us to think about here. Why is one question. Why are they raging and plotting? And verse 3 tells us the answer. They perceive that there is some authority over them. There is some constraint upon them, and they hate it. There's an authority that they perceive over them. They want to be out from under that authority. Now, that's only a display of sinful rebelliousness if that authority is acting in an unjust way upon them, if they're being if, if um, it's only sinful if they're being unjustly oppressed. Right? So the second question is very important, and that's the question of who. Who are they raging against? Who are they plotting against? And verse 2 gives us that answer, and it tells us that there are two answers. First, these people are plotting against 
their own creator and owner. They set themselves, it says verse 2, against Yahweh, against the Lord. That's first. So we, we know right away, this is not the action of an oppressed, unjustly ruled group of people. It's in fact the very definition of sinful rebellion. Sometimes sinful rebellion is expressed in rebelling against God-ordained human authority. That would be sinful rebellion. But these people, as they're being articulated here, they're not even doing that. They're rebelling against God himself. They perceive his authority over them, and they say, how can we get rid of this? So who are they raging at? They're raging at their own maker, and therefore the one who owns them. But that's not all that it says. Verse 2 also says, it says they've set themselves against the Lord, but also against his anointed. You see that? This is the one, the anointed one. This is the one that God has chosen and set apart for himself. The one who will be sent from God, representing God. This is a title, the anointed. This is the Messiah or the Christ. It's all the same word. This is Messiah. Sometimes that title is used of Prophets, like in 1 Kings 19, 16. But most of the time, that title is used to describe the king. So that it's used of King Saul in 1 Samuel 26, God's anointed one. It's used of King David in Psalm 89, 20. Usually this is speaking of God's king. And that's clearly the case here as well, because verse 6 says, it's useless for you, this is now God speaking, it's useless for you to rage against my anointed because I have set my king on Zion. So there is God, their maker and ruler, and there is the one representing God to them, one coming from God. And we first noticed that their sentiment is one of utter sinful rebelliousness as they want to throw off God's rule. But there's one other attribute that we need to notice here before we move on. Do you notice in what they say, do you notice how hardened they are in their blindness about what God is like? What this God is like? They have absolutely no sense that this one that rules over them might be good that his authority over them might, in fact, be desirable. This is not in their mind. No sense that his ways might be the best ways. They are rulers in this world. They want to rule. In fact, they want the place of God himself. And we could belabor that, but let, instead of doing that, let's take these traits we're seeing there in Psalm 2 and bring them with us into the next place I'd like us to look. So you can come back into the New Testament now, but turn ahead to the book of Acts. Find Acts chapter 7. <clears throat> now this will be different than Psalm 2 in that what we're going to find here are specific instances in history of this kind of unbelief put on display. As you come into chapter 7 of Acts, you see that this is the place where Stephen has been brought up before the Sanhedrin, and he's speaking to them. Now remember, this is the Sanhedrin. Right? This is the same group 
that we're hearing from in John this morning. It's not that long after this happens in John 11. This is very likely the same groups of individuals, the same guys that we're hearing from in John 11. Now Stephen is speaking to them here. And he starts telling them the story of Jewish history. That's what you have through the whole, through most of that chapter. And what he's doing is he is, as he's moving through their history is he's pointing out specific things in their history. And it's really, it's interesting to notice where he stops and the points that he brings out. For example, verse 9. He points out how the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. And he says there, yet God was with Joseph and rescued him. And pretty soon he gets to Moses, and it's interesting what he chooses to emphasize about that situation. Find verse 25. I'll read just a, a few verses here. This is what Stephen reminds them of. He's speaking of Moses. He says, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Now, we know the answer to that question, don't we? Who is it that sent this man back to this people to rule and to serve as a judge, to intermediate between? Who is it? God sent him. This is the one, in this case, whom God has chosen and sent representing him. And the question he gets is, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Now look down at verse 35. He's still talking about Moses. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. <clears throat> and in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. Maybe you can tell the point that Stephen is leading to here. But he brings it all to a head down in verse 51 as he's again speaking to the same group of people, the Sanhedrin. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you 
have now betrayed and murdered. I don't know why, but it's always hit my ear more pleasingly, a different translation that says there, they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whose murderers and betrayers you have now become. Now, what is Stephen emphasizing in these points? It's not hard to see, for one thing, the emphasis on the same attributes that we saw on display in Psalm 2. There's this repeated emphasis upon stubbornness, rebelliousness against the thing, not just God, but the things that God was doing. You can see even from that first verse that we read, verse 25, also an emphasis on their complete blindness concerning God's saving ways. He moves toward them unto salvation, and they don't see it. They don't understand, and they push him away. However, we could misunderstand that if we missed the emphasis that we read in verse 51, where he sums it all up by saying of them, you always resist the Holy Spirit. And what we find in these instances in history that he's giving us is we find another attribute, and that is that this resistance lashes out in violence. That's what happens. Those whom God sent they killed. They persecuted and they killed. And now, Stephen says, you have killed the very one that those prophets were announcing. He has come and you killed him. There's an incredible statement that our Lord makes, even a prophecy, really, in Matthew 23. Listen to this. Jesus says there, beginning in verse 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. And then he says this. Very simple thing for him to say to finish this condemnation. He simply says to them, fill up then the measure of your fathers. Go ahead. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. And fill it up, they will. As they seek to finish the job their fathers had started by killing not another who has come to announce the coming of one, of the chosen one, but by killing the very one himself whom God has sent. Now what changed from Psalm 2 to Acts 7 is that we moved from a declaration of what is really going on in human hearts to the way that that looks on the ground in human history as it actually plays out. What does it look like to refuse to believe in the one whom God has sent, and therefore to refuse to believe in God himself. This is what our text in John 11 does so helpfully for us. It clearly bears out for us, and this is what, it's what we desperately need to understand. It lays out for us a true biblical picture of unbelief. 
And what we find is that unbelief in Scripture is not described in modern, post-enlightenment terms that we often think of the word unbelief. It does not describe it in terms of doubting the evidence of his existence. Just needing some more facts, and until I have those facts, I'm not really persuaded, so I don't believe. That is not the picture that God's word gives us of the sin of unbelief. In fact, God's word gives us quite the opposite picture. The point is made over and over again that mankind being made in God's image is created knowing that God exists. We can't escape it. Romans 1.19 tells us that in our unrighteousness, men suppress the truth. It says, quote, because what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. That's what the Bible tells us about this other conception, this this notion of, of knowledge of God. That's the sort of thing that I just read to you in Romans 1 that we are to be thinking of and that we're talking about when we talk about unbelief. The appeal that we'll hear today at times of more evidence More evidence. It is a tactic of unbelief in order to excuse itself. But what we find in places like this morning is that the truth of the matter is unbelief does not care what it sees. It doesn't matter what it sees. It doesn't matter what it hears. Because when it hears from God, it hears a voice that it does not trust. The Israelites believed by a certain time in their time with Moses and Moses' revelation to them, by the time they were in the wilderness, the Israelites knew that Moses really was sent from God. It's quite inescapable in terms of a factual knowledge. They knew that the signs he performed were real, did they not? And when they got into the desert, what they showed is that it didn't matter because they didn't trust him. They didn't trust the God who sent him. And therefore they didn't trust him. So that they can say to him, after all that they saw in Egypt, they can say to him, you led us out into the desert to die. And their hearts can return to Egypt and long for the days. It's the same cry that we heard in Psalm 2. We see you, we just don't trust you. We want to flee from you, and even, in fact, to attack you. So we're seeing that unbelief is not, at its essence, a lack of information. It's a lack of trust. Or to put it in terms that Jesus has used recently in John's Gospel, I hear your voice, and it sounds like a voice I want to get away from. I don't trust it. Now let's add in what we find here in our text this morning, verses 45 to 53. Let me reread for us. We'll read verses 47 and 48. 
So just be thinking here. The true Messiah himself has come. And what we've seen is he's come with indisputable signs of his divine authority and his divine origins. What is the response to be? Verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The first thing that we hear from them at the news of this miracle of life from the grave is the question, what are we to do? Literally what they ask is, what are we doing? What are we doing? And so some translations take that to mean something like, what should we do? Like, what should we do next? What's our game plan here? But others take it more as a statement of self-reflection. What are we doing? What are we accomplishing? Either way that we would want to take that, you can hear in their voice, can't you, a sense of futility and desperation. And they tell us why they feel this, why they feel so helpless. It's because, as they say, this man performs many signs. Do you hear the admission in that? There is no escaping it. They, they understand, it's indisputable, that he is in fact doing these things. So listen to where their minds go. This man does perform many signs. If we let him go on like this, if we let him, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They're worried about the well-being of the nation. Whoever it is that's responsible for all that stuff that's going on around us, we know one thing, we don't trust him. He may have given this one guy the ability to walk again. He may have given that other guy his sight back when he'd been born blind. He might have given Lazarus his very life back from the grave, but he cannot be trusted to keep us safe. We have to take that upon ourselves. We are the rulers. And if our nation is to be safe, we must take that responsibility upon ourselves. What do you think? Is there a problem here that they have just not seen enough yet? Maybe if they see a bit more, they will become convinced. Is that the problem that God's word is showing to us? Is that the problem that's underwriting their disbelief? It very clearly is not. And if we still struggle, though, with that question, I need to remind you that Jesus actually addresses that very question and answers it for us. Do you remember his parable? I mean, John is notoriously without any parables in the whole gospel. But do you remember the parable elsewhere of the rich man and Lazarus? Different Lazarus than this Lazarus. You have a rich man, this is Luke 16, a rich man dies and goes to Hades in torment at the same day that a faithful beggar named Lazarus dies and is carried to Abraham's side, it says in that parable. And the rich man calls to Father Abraham from across a great chasm. What he's worried about is he's worried about his brothers who are still alive on earth. 
So he calls out to Father Abraham and he asks him to send Lazarus, the beggar, back to earth to warn his brothers who are still there. Do you remember that? Luke 16, 27, and he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, if we're thinking about unbelief, in the way that our modern age has tricked us into thinking about it, that it's really a matter of of, uh, genuine neutral ground, uncertainty, and just needing to learn some things or see some things and have sufficient evidence to weigh, if we're tricked into thinking that that's the nature of unbelief, then that that I just read in Luke 16 makes no sense at all. Abraham's words fall totally flat and disingenuous. In fact, we even find ourselves sympathizing with the rich man. I ask you, in Jesus' parable, do you think he means for us to sympathize with the rich man who is asking him to send Lazarus to warn his brothers? That is not the point here at all. Is it? We would only adopt that posture if we've been tricked as to what unbelief is really like. In fact, what we find there in that chapter is that Jesus is actually teaching us about unbelief right there. He's showing us what its nature is. That's the whole point of the parable, the nature of unbelief, which is that if somebody does not trust the voice of God, it doesn't matter what they are shown. He says there, they will not be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. I ask you, be convinced of what? In that parable, he says, they won't be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Be convinced of what? Excuse me. Is he saying they won't be convinced? that a supernatural being exists if someone should rise from the dead? Is he speaking into this Jewish context and saying they won't be convinced of the existence of a God who made them? That's not what he's talking about. They already know that. That would be very much confirmed to them if someone rises from the dead, returns to this world. It's not a matter of belief in his existence. They won't be convinced that he is to be trusted and obeyed bowed down before and praised. It doesn't matter if someone rises from the dead. They won't believe that. Whoever this is who is responsible for such a thing, we aren't safe with him. So what will they do? Well, that's the question that they're asking in verse 47. What do we do? But finally, one man speaks up for them. And I think we're meant to understand that he speaks into their tremendous uncertainty 
Not about whether they should put their trust on Christ or not, but about what the next step should be. He speaks into that uncertainty. And the result is they agree with his assessment of what the next step should be. That's where we get verse 53 at the end. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. The man's name is Caiaphas. And he's currently the high priest of Israel, which makes him a Sadducee, not a Pharisee, but a Sadducee. And he responds to this discussion of theirs uh, and to their indecisiveness with a tremendous display of rudeness, doesn't he? Apparently, even the, what we have writing from Josephus, who was a first century historian, who said back then, the Sadducees are known among all for being boorish, for being rude to everyone, even them, amongst themselves. This is what was told. And it, I just think it's funny then we hear this high priest Sadducee speak to his group, and what he says to them is, you know nothing at all. That's exactly uh, that same personality on display. You people don't know anything. You're not sure what to do in order to save our nation. You people don't know anything. And what happens next, actually, is fascinating because two things happen at the same time. One of them is that God, who, of course, knows exactly what they are talking about, who is in the room as the conversation takes place because he is everywhere, and who knows exactly how he will be using this conversation of theirs to bless his people through Holy Scripture, God chooses to use this moment when the question comes up of the safety of the nation. That's the question that's on the table. He chooses to use that moment to issue forth a prophecy through the lips of the high priest. The office of the high priest is intimately wrapped up with the office of prophet with prophecy. High priest is he through whom often prophecy would come. And God chooses to use that means again. The question that's been raised is, how will God's people be kept safe? And God issues a prophecy. Well, in fact, their safety will be secured through the death of this one man, Jesus Christ. But in fact, in speaking of God's people, John tells us the prophecy is extending beyond the borders of this nation. We're hearing from God that by this man's death, he will gather into one the children of God scattered abroad. Just as Jesus said he would do earlier in this gospel, didn't he? I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And so the two will have one shepherd. So that's one thing that happens next. Here is God issues this prophecy. But John is careful to explain. Look at verse 51. He tells us there about Caiaphas. He did not say this of his own accord. Now that doesn't mean that Caiaphas had no control over the words that came out of his mouth. He very much did. What John is making clear is that God intended something far deeper in significance besides what Caiaphas himself meant. This prophecy of the salvation of God's people through this man's death was not at all on Caiaphas' mind as he said this. But it was in the mind of God. So that's one thing that happens here next. God uses the high priest to prophesy, even against Caiaphas' own conscious intention about the substitutionary death of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will die in the place of his people. By his death, we will live. 
But there's another thing that happens here, right at the same time as that, in terms of what Caiaphas himself is meaning to say. When he says in verse 50, he says to them, he's just said, you people don't understand, don't know anything. And then he says, nor do you understand. And he uses there with understand a verb that has a lot of context in the accounting world. It has to do with adding things up. Seeing the situation, adding it up, and drawing a conclusion. He's mad at their indecisiveness. You guys can't put two and two together here. Don't you get it? If it's coming down to one man or the nation, the answer is simple. This man has to die. What's so hard about that? This man has to die. Now, can you hear how far that is from something like, we believe this man is a blasphemer and that God's law calls us to put him to death. There is nothing like that even on the radar here. There is nothing here but a bald-faced statement of pragmatism and self-preservation. As he tells them of an explicit decision to murder this man. This is a plot of murder. Now, there are a couple of implications of what we're seeing in this. They're helpful in us understanding what we're reading, but they're also helpful in us understanding ourselves, our own hearts. One implication regards unbelief, and you could say the other regards belief, so we'll take them like that. Regarding unbelief, What we're finding here is that unbelief has nothing at all to do with rational thought or honest thought or genuine thought. Unbelief is in place, in any place, where I have placed myself on the throne. Where I have done that, I have given myself to the sin of unbelief. Because unbelief is fundamentally a matter of the creature wanting to be in control. Because the authority over him is not to be trusted, does not know for sure what should be done, does not care. The creature wants to be in control. The creature wants to be the one whose will is done on earth as it is in heaven. I don't trust him. I don't trust him regarding my future or the well-being <coughs> the well-being or the outcome of that illness that my loved one is suffering right now. I don't trust him because I know that he sometimes ordains suffering to happen in this life. He sometimes ordains loss to happen, death to happen. And if he sometimes ordains that, he might ordain that in this case too. And so I don't trust him. And I'll take whatever means necessary to bring my will about. If it accords with the law of God, great. If it doesn't accord, so be it. I will take whatever means necessary to bring my will about. And so what happens is pragmatism rules my decisions then in that realm. Now, as creatures, we're masters of inconsistency. I can be a believer, trust the Lord with my salvation, uh, believe that he is trustworthy, and yet still there's that dark place in the land where unbelief persists. 
We need to be able to recognize that in those places, that is what it is. When I don't trust him, it's unbelief. You can spot it when we begin to make our decisions based not on what he has revealed to us, but based fundamentally upon what will bring my will about. I do that because I am not believing him. I am not trusting him. And my friends, what is needed in that moment and in those places of our lives is the simplicity of Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. It says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. That's verse 5. What is he telling us to do? He's telling us, here's what you must do. Settle entirely on the fact that God's ways are always the right ones. And that they are right even when our understanding gives us no help in understanding how or why that might be. Verse 6 then says this, In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. The word for acknowledge there is just the word for knowing. That word has a wide range of meaning. So, in all your ways, know him. Be aware of him. Know him in an intimate sense. Have fellowship with him. The idea is, don't make it your goal in life to understand everything that happens or to pass everything that happens through the sieve of your understanding. Make it your goal to know him. That is, to be near and mindful of and in fellowship with him. That is how, in fact, it's the only way how. That is how our lives will be well lived. He's giving us the key to a life well lived. And he can do it with statements as simple as that. But you know it to be true. If I have decided that it truly is and ought to be my will that should be done on earth as it is in heaven, there is no way I can trust one whose will might come into conflict with mine. And I would remind you this morning that God's will does often come into conflict with ours. I cannot trust one whose will might conflict with mine if mine must be right and is what ought to be done. And in the end, my only option is I will have to seek to kill him. Do you see why unbelief is at the heart of man's rebellion against God? Now regarding belief, what we're finding here, and we see it in the example of the Sanhedrin, But when we've we've understood unbelief rightly, it's not at all hard to see this. We're finding that a prerequisite for belief, a prerequisite for it, is humility. There's just no other way to say it. There is no path to true belief in God that is not preceded with a deep sense of the rightness of my being humbled. It's pride that would boast two things. Pride is what would boast, my will can be done, and my will should be done. 
But when we're humbled, we speak very differently than that. We say along with the psalmist in Psalm 8, God, what is man that you are mindful of him? We say things like that. We say along with the 14th proverb about ourselves. We say it truly. We're convinced of it. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. We stop worshiping our own desires. Listen, even the good ones. And instead, what we do is we stand in amazement at the wisdom and the goodness and the trustworthiness of God. And so we believe him. And I ask you, with what we have seen today, that the Bible says again and again about the state of the human heart, I ask you, what is it that possibly accounts for anyone coming to that blessed place where they would truly stand before God and say, what am I that you are mindful of me? There will be ways that will seem very right in my mind, and they would kill me if you would give them to me. What is it that could possibly bring a sinner like me, like any of us, to that blessed place? Now, you would answer that question with a sentence, right? Listen, if the subject of that sentence, of your answer to that question, is man, you have not been paying attention to John's gospel. He has made it abundantly clear. What possibly accounts for someone arriving at the place of humility and faith that would trust in the will of another? God must open their eyes. There is no other explanation for it. We must receive mercy and grace from God to have our eyes opened. God must draw them to himself. He must grant them nothing short of a rebirth. Has Jesus been trying to make this point for us in many different ways in this gospel? That's true of salvation itself, the moment of conversion. But it is no less true of the remaining spheres of rebellion in our own hearts that are being sought out by the Holy Spirit in sanctification. It is no less true with those. We all have them. So I'll ask you a question. We'll close with this. Maybe this question doesn't apply to you, but maybe it does. Why? Why so often? Why is so much of our prayer life consumed with prayers for our will to be done and so little time consumed with prayers for God to grant it that we would trust him more? I'm not saying we don't take our prayers to him, uh, not at all. We should pray for what we need. We should bring our requests to God, the things that we're fearful of, the things that are, are occupying our thoughts. We're commanded to do that in Philippians 4.6. I'm not saying we ought not do that. I'm saying we must see it as a significant duty to be praying for God to increase our trust in him in every circumstance. Heavenly Father, root out unbelief in my life. I confess. What can I hide from you? I confess that I tremble at the thought 
of you not doing my will in this area of my life. Forgive me for daring to think that your way might ever be deficient to mine when our wills come into conflict. Forgive me. Help me, Lord, to trust you more, to trust you with all of my life. We cannot battle unbelief if we don't understand it. And we cannot pray for more faith if we are not settled that our God in everything is truly worthy of our trust. And so this morning we thank God for what he has shown us here about the truth of the unbelief that is reigning in the life of every unbeliever and that is continuing to persist even in our lives. We thank God for what he has done in his kindness to show us how we might walk more nearly to him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, there, I can say confidently, there's no believer in here that does not hear these things and recognize in themselves that there are places where we fall short before you in spite of everything we have seen. And you have shown us so much. You've taught us so much. You've shown us so much. We thank you for it. But this morning, we're especially thankful for your patience with your children. We're thankful for the fact that you are so so much more uh, gentle with us than we are with others. And Lord, we recognize this morning as another display of that gentle patience. You are kind to us. You do indeed meet us where we are. But we've just experienced again that you do not ever leave us where we are because you love us and you are good. Lord, thank you for what we've seen this morning. And I do pray, Lord, that this would lead to repentance. This would lead to renewed uh, zeal and energy in that area of my life to do battle. That it would lead to prayers that are fuller. Because we come to you with a clear sense that while our emotions may not obey, we know that your, your ways are good, not just good for your glory, but good for your people. So, Father, we thank you for what you've done for us this morning, and I pray that by your Spirit, you would attend your word and cause it to bear fruit. We thank you. We love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.